Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Our guest today is the co-founder and chief of product and innovation at Nanoramic Laboratories, where he focuses on technology development and commercialization. He has led the execution of Nanoramic's first product lines. He co-authored multiple winning grant proposals, holds five technical degrees from MIT, including the PhD from the Electrical Engineering Department, and also won both the David Adler Memorial Thesis Prize and the Morris Joseph Levin Award for his thesis work and was a Martin Family Fellow in 2009. During this episode, we talked about the ethicality and sustainability of lithium batteries, how easy it is to actually recycle these batteries, and how Nanoramics battery will impact the automotive industry. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. John Cooley. Thank you very much for having me. You are most welcome. I'm very curious to kind of find out, like, how did that sustainable journey of yours actually started? So I spent a lot of time in school, in undergrad, and then grad school at MIT. You know, I did a PhD in the electrical engineering department at MIT. You know, I had always been sort of fascinated by electronic systems and making them do something that you want them to do. I think that's a very interesting phenomenon for me. But through grad school and then in sort of the time period that that was all happening in, the clean tech hype came about. And and a lot of this came out of the recession in 2008 and 2009. There was quite a lot of buzz in the industry and in the media about funding new technologies for clean technology applications. And there was also quite a bit of funding that came out of the Department of Energy at that time from the stimulus package. As a graduate student at MIT, I had, um, you know, gotten a little restless as grad students do. And I had taken a business class to step out of my comfort zone. It was a class called Energy Ventures at MIT. And that turned into a business plan competition, which turned into a a government funding proposal to the DOE. So as grad students, you know, I, I had a sort of written that proposal with another lab mate out of the basement of MIT, and we won five and a half million dollars to develop advanced energy storage technology for clean tech applications, most notably in automotive and grid-based energy storage systems. That triggered the founding of the company that we have today, Nanoramic Laboratories. At the time, it was called FastCap Systems. So it was myself and a co-founder. And you know, what's interesting about that story is that you know the initial aspiration and the long-term aspiration has remained to find ourselves in a position, in a position to impact clean energy. But initially, we, we knew that we couldn't penetrate very high volume, low margin markets like automotive. And we also knew that those markets didn't quite yet exist at the time. It's only been in the last few years that, for instance, electric vehicles have really been a commercialized product that everybody can access. 
or that's you know that you can go and you can go and purchase on the market. And grid-based energy storage was also just sort of in its infancy at the time as well. So we identified what we called an alpha market or a beachhead market, and that was in the opposite industry, oil and gas drilling. This isn't sort of something that we thought of first. I think a lot of new companies realize that they can chase the money uh, to start in a market that is low volume, very high price point, like oil and gas drilling. But then the narrative arc kind of became, so can you start in an alpha market and maybe move to a beta market and ultimately enter clean energy and um, use the proceeds from those initial markets to fund the clean energy technology product development? And so we did that. You know, We started in oil and gas drilling. Coming out of the basement of MIT, I quick, pretty quickly found myself on oil rig floors in the desert in Texas and Colorado deploying our products in the field. And I learned a lot both about you know, actual hardware and electronic product development, but also manufacturing and field deployments and um, service and some, some of the practicalities of that. And there's a lot of funny s- stories there. Wow, that sounds like quite a journey. And like what you've said, you know, with if you look at like the electric vehicles, I would say like Tesla would probably be one of the like leaders, you know, obviously leading the way with their more like expensive cars and everyone wanted to drive one. And it's really opened up the market for other cars as well and companies to actually go into that as well. What I really love about your product, and I was like super excited to talk to you today because I, back in Dubai, I used to be the ambassador for, it's called Evera, and they used to promote electric vehicles in Dubai because back then everyone was still like, what do you mean? Like if it's like not a Tesla, can it really still be an electric vehicle? So that was quite interesting. And what I love about what you guys do and I want to like dig a little deeper into that as well is that, you know, you've designed this like awesome, awesome battery as well that can maybe in a couple of years, I would be able to drive an electric vehicle with one of your batteries in there. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you and your team are doing that kind of sets you apart, I would say, from different companies like Tesla or some of the other EV electric like battery operating companies. Absolutely. And by the way, that is absolutely our goal is, you know, as fast as possible, get the technology into vehicle platforms on on the road. And what I would say is there there are basically two competitive advantages that we bring to the industry. One is uh, both of them are intended to rapidly rapidly commercialize the technology to have an impact on clean tech and CO2 emissions as fast as possible. One of those advantages is, is the business model. And so kind of in that story that I was telling a minute ago, there was also a lot of realization that there were companies around us that had identified a new technology and immediately attempted to scale that up and own all of their high volume manufacturing. And we saw cautionary tales around the industry about that. You know, it's a very, very, very different skill set and a very different level of capital raise that you, you need to scale up a technology and manufacture it yourself. So we've developed a capital light business model, which by default is sort of a licensing business model. So develop the technology, show how to manufacture it, prove that, and then teach an established manufacturer how to do it, and then enjoy the royalties from that license. That's one of our advantages is that we are not trying to build necessarily our own high volume manufacturing, but we're giving ourselves the option to exploit existing manufacturing that exists today. The other competitive advantage, and it it dovetails very well with that business model, 
is that our battery technology has been specifically designed to reuse existing manufacturing equipment and infrastructure, as opposed to something like um, you know, more exotic technologies or solid state battery or other technologies that promise um, cost and performance advantages. We promise all of those cost performance advantages and in some cases even exceed those cost and performance advantages, but we do it on existing manufacturing equipment and infrastructure. So this bodes really well for rapidly commercializing the technology. It will help overcome barriers to entry with existing manufacturers who become now our partners instead of competitors. And you see all this investment, billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars going into new battery manufacturing plants, especially in Europe, but but more recently in the US and for sure in China as well. We don't want to fight that tide. We want to work with it and design and manufacture in, into that infrastructure. I love that. And that means, obviously, you know, we can have more batteries sooner because I honestly, I love Tesla. It's like such a lovely car. I won't mind having a Tesla. But one thing that I'm really, really, really concerned about in the next couple of years is their batteries, for example. It's not really easy or it actually it's super 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 hard if it can even be recycled you know so i think we are going to sit in a situation in a couple of years like um i mean going back to the uae we had uh what we called the fisker graveyard because obviously that company went out of business and everyone was driving fiskers and now all of a sudden you couldn't get parts you couldn't get certain things so people would just like kind of dump their cars there if it wasn't working anymore so i'm kind of worried about that and i wanted to take a little bit of a look into your batteries like how easy is it to actually recycle once it's been in my car for a couple of years and i need to get a new one i should also mention what i talked about just a minute ago were sort of high level competitive advantages and there are a number of performance and cost advantages and also sustainability advantages. The technology and the battery product that we've developed is called Neocarbonics. It's a lithium ion battery product that we, that we make. But the performance, cost, and sustainability advantages are pretty interesting. It's compelling that we have all of these advantages all in one battery. A lot of technologies sort of offer performance or cost or sustainability advantages, or maybe two of those three. Um, but we offer all, all of those in, in one battery technology. As far as sustainability goes, there are a number of very interesting benefits, and they're kind of lumped into, I would say, two categories. One is the reduction in CO2 emissions from the battery manufacturing plant itself. This, I think, is going to be very important for CO2 footprint compliance and regulations, especially those that are coming out in the EU, because we dramatically reduce the energy consumption in the battery manufacturing process. This is a result of eliminating this sort of conventional plastic from the battery electrodes that requires a certain solvent to dissolve it in the paste that you use to make the electrode. And that solvent that you use to dissolve that plastic requires a lot of energy to evaporate it. We eliminate all of that from the process and you can use instead of that solvent, you can use water or, or alcohol solvents that are very easy to evaporate. And our CTO likes to say, you know, you put our electrode on the table and it just dries, you know, that that's very significant and it's true. And it means that sort of the most energy intensive step in the battery manufacturing process is almost eliminated. And the other group of sustainability advantages in, is in recycling. This is sort of what you were asking about. And from a technology standpoint, it's pretty interesting to look at how we 
improve recyclability. And then it's really interesting to think about that in the total product life cycle of these batteries. And then sort of how does that, what are the implications on the industry and, and the business? From a technology standpoint, because we eliminate that plastic that I mentioned, and I should mention it's called PVDF, it's sort of the conventional binder for electrodes. And its role is to take these sort of powders that make up the anode and the cathode, the two electrodes inside the battery, and hold them together and also hold them, bind them to the foil that they, that they rest on. The way that process works is you basically take all the, the, the materials in the cathode or the anode active layer, you, you put them in a mixer with a solvent and dissolve them and make sort of a paste. And then you spread that paste or you coat that paste on a foil and then you dry that, dry that paste. So that's sort of the battery electrode manufacturing process. And again, we eliminate this PVDF. And because we eliminate the PVDF, we eliminate this special toxic solvent called NMP, which is very difficult to evaporate. And because of that, like I said, you can use water or ethanol instead, and it's very easy, easy to evaporate and also um, safer for the workers. For NMP is, um, is also a safety hazard. Like I said, it's, uh, it's actually recognized by the US EPA as, an un, as posing an unreasonable safety hazard to workers. And we believe that in the EU, it's going to become the subject of safety regulations as well. So that's another sort of advantage of the technology from a sustainability standpoint. But if you think about what I mentioned about removing this special NMP solvent from the process and replacing it with water or ethanol to dissolve these materials, you realize that that also applies at the end of life of the battery, right? If what we want to do at the end of life is extract valuable materials from the cathode and anode, for instance, the cathode active materials or the lithium, or in some cases, the active materials on the anode. Now, instead of using the special solvent to dissolve those materials, you can use water, for instance, to dissolve them. And so that recycling process can become easier. You can also, you also don't have this plastic to contend with. The plastic or the PBD, PVDF is something that you don't typically want to recover. So in a recycling process, especially a mechanical recycling process, it's just sort of more mass or material that you have to contend with and that you have to separate from the electrode. Because we eliminate these sort of limiting plasticky materials from the battery manufacturing process, we have all these benefits on cost and also performance and drying energy consumption and then CO2 emissions. But we also we have this, this sort of process benefit on recyclability as well. Wow, that's quite a lot that you've packed into a battery. It is. It's, uh, you know, I like to say it's an elegant, neocarbonics is an elegant technology because for a number of reasons, because like I said, it reuses existing manufacturing infrastructure, but it brings all of these cost performance and sustainability advantages. But it's one of these technologies that every time you study it, you learn a new benefit. Whereas with some other less elegant technologies, maybe the more you study it, the more you realize its limitations, right? So I think, I think that's why we're really excited about neo, neocarbonics as a battery technology. I love that. And how, how did you guys kind of realize that you can just use water to solve it? Was that by accident or was that doing loads of research? You know, the company has a long history in sort of a more specific and, and even niche energy storage technology, which is called an ultra capacitor or super capacitor. So in those first years in our alpha and, and also our beta markets, and even the initial DOE grant was funded a this kind of energy storage, which was an ultra capacitor. And we commercialized that and we, we won additional funding from DOE and also NASA and DOD 
to develop very exotic versions of this technology for harsh conditions, uh, very high temperatures or Venus missions or very low temperatures like deep space missions. Geothermal well drilling was a very high temperature application. And we also commercialize that technology in oil and gas drilling. Like I mentioned, it's that's a very harsh environment. It's 150 degrees Celsius downhole. It's two miles underground and everything has to be designed to be very robust. And so we learned a lot about how to redesign the internal components of energy storage devices to sort of survive those conditions. And we also had to sort of out of necessity innovate the material set and the electrodes. You just couldn't use the conventional materials like PVDF that would otherwise fail. So PVDF will melt at the temperatures that we had to design for. And so we had to come up with new approaches. We replaced PVDF with a what we call a 3D nanocarbon mesh. It serves both as a binder, a mechanical binder. So it binds the materials together and it binds them to the foil. And it also serves as an electrically conductive network, which is unique compared to the PVDF binding strategy. But to answer your question, we sort of realized in doing that and making the slurry, which is this paste that you use to coat the electrode, you don't need NMP solvent to dissolve PVDF. You, you can use any kind of solvent that is compatible with the rest of the process. And for that technology, water works just fine. For certain lithium ion battery cathode materials, you can't use water because they're water sensitive, but you can use a variety of other solvents, including alcohol, which is also very easy to come by and also very easy to evaporate. Wow, that sounds really, really cool. And I mean, when it comes to the batteries, and I'm like kind of referring a little bit more to like cars as well. A lot of people, when I talk to them and they're like, oh, you know, I would love to drive an electric vehicle, especially now with gas prices. <laughs> but one of the things that they are always like saying is like, I honestly just have range anxiety. So like if my car says it can only go 80 kilometers, which like, like if you take like the Fiat 500, for instance, that's only like a 80 kilometers is like maybe 50 miles, 40 miles. I'm not too sure. So it's not a lot. So if you're driving something like the, that, but if you maybe drive something with a little bit more mileage, you know, you won't have really that range anxiety. But that is something that I find a lot of people are like, Ooh, okay, how, how do I do that? So how fast can these batteries charge? Because if I'm stuck somewhere and I want to just like grab a coffee, is it going to be like a four hour coffee that I need to grab or is it like a quick one and I'm fully charged? Right. So that's a great question. And fast charge performance is definitely one of the performance advantages that Neocarbonics offers. And it's pretty unique that it has a fast charge capability, you know, along with all of the other advantages that it has, which by the way, include longer range. So we increase the energy density by about 30% for batteries uh, that use neochromonics. But you know, the topic of range anxiety comes down to a, a few different things. One is the actual range of the, the vehicle and also infrastructure for charging, right? So, and this, this really comes in, um, this really kind of falls into a discussion about recharging paradigms. So, you know, your range anxiety might be mitigated if you know that you have access or easy access to fast charging stations the same way that you have access to, to, you know, gas refueling stations. And then, you know, to your comment about how long is it going to take? How convenient is it going to be? Well, the sort of target in the industry is you want to be able to charge most of the battery in under 15 minutes. 
And our technology exceeds that target. We charge more than 80% of the battery in 15 minutes. And so we enable fast charge, the sort of fast charge recharging paradigm. But that, you know, that really depends a lot on where the infrastructure goes. Are we going to keep this sort of gas station recharging paradigm and repurpose gas stations as fast charging EV stations? Are we going to count on people to just recharge at home? Or is it going to be a mix? It's a very interesting topic. Yeah, because I definitely think, you know, if you live close to where you work or something, you know, like 50 miles might be enough for you to last for a week. But it's like when you want to go away for the weekend or when you do that extra, you know, trip. So that's that's really interesting. I quite like that idea, you know, revamping um, gas stations to charging stations. And would you be able to like fast charge like every single time? Because I know with like, you know, Tesla, they were saying, yeah, you can like supercharge it, but don't supercharge it every single time. And like we've had so many issues with in the UAE with the taxis because they've got quite a lot of Teslas in their fleet. There was so many issues every time because obviously it can only go the amount of mileage and then you need to charge. So for a taxi driver, you know, he can maybe need to recharge it every three hours or something. So that was real big issue. And they were looking at, you know, shall we take the battery out and do like battery swap options? And yeah, so so that that's something that I would be really curious to see whether we can fast charge every every time or not advisable. We call that frequent fast charging. Again, it's like this really interesting interplay between sort of where the use cases are going and then the actual specific design aspects of the batteries themselves. Because you can design a battery that is kind of good for range or other factors, but is bad at fast charging or is bad at frequent fast charging. Or you can design a battery that's really good at fast charging and frequent fast charging, but has some other trade-offs. I will say that Neocarbonics is particularly good at both fast charging and frequent fast charging, partly due to the fact that this binder that we eliminate is replaced with an electrically conductive carbon mesh. It's much more efficient electrically to, to charge the battery. And it's also very thermally conductive as well. So it's good at dissipating the heat that comes with fast charging. So we see in our data that we have very good frequent frequent or even continuous fast charging performance and cycle life with with that, the, the the factor that you usually impact when you fast charge every time is cycle life. Um, and so that's what we look at when we look at the data. It's really interesting to bring up the taxi example because that's a use case that's specific, but also very important. So we can think about, will users start to buy or will manufacturers start to, to develop cars that are spe for specific use cases like that? Or are we gonna end up with vehicle platforms that are kind of ubiquitous and good, useful for every every kind of application. And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. And I, and I think it will depend a lot on how the, you know, the battery technology evolves. And I think also kind of like with ride sharing cars as well, like, because I, for one, like we don't even own a car. <laughs> so, you know, it's really great to see that there might come, you know, options where, I actually pay like a monthly subscription and I've got access to a car whenever that's an electric vehicle. And, but now we need to look at mileage and yeah, so it's quite interesting. I, I'm, I'm really curious, like kind of to see, you know, how your batteries is going to impact 
the EV movement, because I definitely think it, it, it is. So yeah, well done on that. <laughs> Our hope for that, by the way, is a lot of times we talk about the sort of cost performance frontier, sort of what are the trade-offs and limitations of, of any technology. And our hope is that, and what we see is that we, we expand that frontier, right? So the trade-offs are somewhat relaxed between cost performance and also sustainability. And so our hope is that we, by doing that, we enable batteries and electric vehicles that are more easily adopted widely throughout the, the industry, and that we can accelerate the pace of EV adoption that way and have, a, have an impact on CO2 emissions and climate change. Yeah, that's so important. And I I mean, it's not just that sustainability aspects as well, but it's also kind of the ethical part of either the fossil fuel industry, as well as how current uh, lithium batteries are made. Because, you know, if you look at cobalt, which is an ingredient in normal uh, lithium batteries as well, you know, sometimes that's a bit of an issue also, you know, some of the other ingredients. So why was it important for you to like be ethical as well as sustainable? Yeah, so there's a few, there's a few things there. And, and one is that there's a recyclability aspect that we talked about, and that kind of gives you the ability to avoid the need to remine valuable materials at the end of life. And this can have implications, especially for materials like cobalt, like you mentioned, or lithium or nickel. Uh, these are materials that come from places that have ethical implications or even political implications, depending on which material we're talking about. And so the ability to not have to remine those materials is a, is, a, is a major advantage for ethical considerations. The other way that we impact that, because we sort of ubiquitously improve the cost and performance and sustainability of lithium ion batteries, we can improve the performance of other chemistries that are used in lithium ion batteries that have maybe um, ethical or supply chain advantages, but are limited in performance or maybe cost aspects. One example of that is called lithium iron phosphate. This is a, a cathode chemistry that is sort of very advantageous from a supply chain aspect. The raw materials for lithium iron phosphate cathodes are sort of widely abundant, and we don't have the need, for instance, to mine cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But lithium iron phosphate or LFP batteries have a drawback in energy density, which means that the range of the vehicle is limited. If you apply neocarbonics to those batteries, you, you increase the range. And so we sort of fix the problem of LFP batteries. And now you have a, a battery that is sufficient on electric vehicle range, but also has all of these other benefits, including supply chain benefits. This is one of these technologies that you sort of learn, the more you study it, you learn all of these sort of first, second, and then even third order benefits that are all very interesting. And they, they kind of weave into all of these industry and sort of long range concerns like supply chain and ethics. And it's really cool, it's really cool to um, discuss those and think through them and, and how they can have a positive impact, not just on those issues in particular, but really the goal here is to accelerate EV adoption. And so how, how can we exploit these benefits to accelerate electric vehicle adoption? And how do you think like this technology will actually replace like fossil fuels? Like what do you think the transition or something would be? Because obviously we're sitting 
I mean, here in Australia, we've got the grid. That's quite an issue because obviously, you know, charging back to the grid and getting getting power from the grid is still coming from like fossil fuels at the moment. What do you think about that? There's a few plot holes, I would say, in the electric vehicle renaissance or the transition to electric vehicles. And one of them, which is maybe more minor than that, is the fact that battery manufacturing itself emits quite a lot of CO2. That's one of the advantages that we bring is that we reduce, reduce reduce the energy consumption in the process and therefore reduce the CO2 emissions from the battery manufacturing process itself. But the other big plot hole and maybe the bigger plot hole is that when you move from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, really what you're doing is you're moving the CO2 emissions from the vehicle to the grid, right? And so what you hope is that First of all, it's more efficient to generate energy on the grid than it is to generate it at the vehicle level. That tends to be the case. But you also hope that the grid power sources are cleaner and are increasingly cleaner, right? So as we go forward in time, we move away from fossil fuels on the grid and toward energy sources that don't emit carbon dioxide. The good news is that sort of as the electric vehicle transition is starting, starting to really pick up, the transition to non-fossil fuel sources of energy on the grid is also really starting starting to pick up. And this is kind of happening almost like quietly in the background. You don't see this quite as much in the media as you do with electric vehicles. But uh, even today in the US, it's cheaper to build a solar plus energy storage power plant than it is to build a new natural gas fired power plant. And you're, so you're starting to see that economic advantage in the deployments of solar and also um, wind on, on the grid. Uh, I was driving through Texas um, a few weeks ago and in Southwest Texas, you drive through wind farms and they, these wind farms go on as far as you can see. And what's also interesting is that not only do you see wind farms as far as you can see, but you see trucks with wind turbines driving to install new wind turbines. So it's just continuing and expanding. And I think that we can be optimistic about that kind of a progression. Oh, definitely. I love that. And yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I feel that a lot of the times people think, okay, cool, if I buy an electric vehicle today, I'm still using fossil fuels. But, you know, I feel it is that step in the right direction. And it's like you said, you know, the like everything from the grid is slowly getting getting adjusted and getting greener. So that's amazing. And what would you say is next for Nanoramic? What projects are there in the pipeline or something that you can share with our crazy birds? Yeah. So really, like I said, our focus is on commercializing the technology and vehicle platforms as fast as possible. And we're exploiting both the fundamental technology advantages of the ability to reuse existing manufacturing infrastructure, but also our business model, which is a capital-like business model. We found that electric vehicle OEMs have become sort of our priority. And this is really because they First of all, they feel the pain of the end user more than the battery manufacturers do. So they know that they have there's urgency in improving their technology and reducing the cost of their technology, battery, battery technology in particular, and doing it quickly so that they can keep up with the pace of demand that they're seeing in, in the industry. Uh, we also believe and see that electric vehicle OEMs are going to increasingly vertically integrate. They're going to incorporate their own battery manufacturing as time goes on. Today, you see them sort of joint venturing with established battery manufacturers, but we think that that's sort of a temporary stopgap measure. And so we're working closely with a number of OEMs 
And so essentially what we do is we bring them a baseline battery cell that works and has a lot of data associated with it that's very compelling and that we can we can also produce and manufacture and show it to them and they can test it themselves. And then once they see that, they want a customization of that and they want a commercialization plan to either manufacture that themselves or, or sort of teach their, their manufacturing partners how to do it. Um, in some cases, they'd like us to manufacture at least to a certain extent. And so we're, we're in a number of those different projects today. Like I said, we're really just trying to move along that process as quickly as possible so that we can see neocarbonics batteries in vehicle platforms very, very, very soon. I would also say that the um, vehicle design in process historically has been sort of famously long, but with the electric vehicle transition, there's quite a lot of urgency, there's societal pressure, there's a lot of competition. You know, this we this really is owing to Tesla's sort of spearheading this uh, transition. And you're seeing the vehicle manufacturers try to one up one another and get new and better vehicle technology on the market as fast as possible. And that's shrinking this vehicle design and timeline. And we're we're enjoying we're sort of benefiting from that, both the urgency and also the 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 sort of compressed timeline for designing new technology into into vehicles. I probably can't or shouldn't go into more detail than that, but but that's sort of the gist of it is you know OEMs or vehicle manufacturers. And we're very directly focused on working with a number of them to sort of suit their needs for their upcoming vehicle product releases. Just want to mention to our crazy birds as well, they need to head over to your website and also have a look at your amazing board of directors or your advisory board, sorry, because you've got quite a lot of like, you know, former like CEOs and presidents of like, you know, quite well-known vehicle companies on there as well. I just feel like, you know, there's, there's really so much that you guys have to offer for this industry as well. So I'm really excited to, you know, keep on following that journey of you guys and, you know, see how it kind of grows. And who knows, maybe our car will have one of your batteries one day. And I mean, you've, you've also worked with like really amazing organizations, like also with like aerospace as well, which you guys dabbed a little bit in the beginning in this as well, like NASA. So yeah, it's really quite cool. So we're definitely going to be following that journey. But do you have like any advice, John, for any of our crazy birds that's like listening to this episode and they maybe have like, you know, an interest in like the tech space, maybe want to head over to MIT or anything like, you know, what advice can you give them if they wanted to like enter in this space and really want to make a difference? Probably the first thing that I would think of there is just to be informed, um, follow the industry, you know, look at the data, uh, especially on electric vehicles and grid scale energy storage, participate as much as you can and buy an electric vehicle if, if you can. I, you know, I think there are a lot of exciting new models coming out. Uh, practical models and a, and a variety of very nice electric vehicles that you can purchase and sort of lead by example. And also be aware not just of these two sectors for CO2 emissions, right? They're the two sectors being electric vehicles and grid scale power delivery. But there are other sources of CO2 emissions that we need to be aware of. And, and there needs to be conversation about these are agriculture and also heavy industry. So in agriculture, there are quite a lot, sort of the leading source of greenhouse gas emissions is methane from cattle. 
Uh, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas emission. You don't see that talked about much um, in the media, I would say, but it's sort of, we sort of can't address climate change without addressing all of these problems. And then the other one in heavy industry, in particular uh, concrete manufacturing, there's actually a chemical process that emits quite a lot of CO2 emissions. And this is in addition to just the energy consumption in heavy industry at large that requires that, you know, creates CO2 emissions itself. Try to educate yourself about sort of what are these different sources of CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions and participate. You have the opportunity to participate now um, by becoming an electric vehicle owner. Um, so that's very exciting. And it's definitely not something we could have said 10 years ago when we started the company, <laughs> although, it, or, or maybe, maybe you could have, maybe you could have, but you would have been really on the outskirts today. It's really becoming more mainstream and you have the opportunity to do that. I love that. And can you share with our crazy birds, what car do you drive? Yeah, so I have a minivan and the lease is coming up and we are looking at when we started that lease. So I have two kids. When we started started that lease, there were no electrified drivetrain minivans, but we needed a minivan. Uh, the lease is coming up. And there are a couple options now, but one of the more exciting ones that's not exactly a minivan, but it's close is the uh, VW Buzz. Yeah, it's like the remake of the Volkswagen bus, but as an electric vehicle. So we're very excited about that. And we're also really excited about now there are electric pickup trucks on the market. Today, the, the Rivian and the F-150 are available. And then there are going to be a few more in the next year or two. That's what we're looking forward to. And we're, we're already, we already have our um, electric vehicle charger planned for our driveway. Oh, wow. That's exciting. I'm actually looking forward to when Elon Musk is designing a car for his entire family to fit in. Not sure how far that is off, but that could be an interesting like a little minivan as well. So yeah, looking forward to hear like your experience with your soon to be new car. (laughs) John, we are now going to move into the final questions. Is there anything that you felt we've missed out? Anything that you feel you still want to share with our crazy birds? You know, I, I guess what I would say is there are some pretty important advantages of neocarbonics that we didn't mention. I did I did talk about the range extension. So we improve energy density of lithium-ion batteries by about 30%. Um, we're chemistry agnostic. So we apply that to sort of the leading, leading chemistry, which is called NMC. And you talked about cobalt. Cobalt is part of that chemistry. And we also enable other technologies like our chemistries like LFP, which I mentioned in the context of supply chain and ethics. And, and then also other technologies as well. We reduce the cost of lithium-ion batteries substantially. And this is a cost reduction that is going to be persistent because it is going to, the sort of percentage or ratio of cost improvement is going to stay true as sort of material and supply chain costs either go up or down in the future. And that, that cost advantage is somewhere between, between 12 and 30%, depending on the chemistry. If you know about pricing or margins and cost savings in the lithium-ion battery industry, the ability to make this sort of relatively simple change to the manufacturing process and have that kind of a cost impact is 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 significant. Um, so that's something that's very important about neocarbonics. I feel that's quite amazing because you guys have actually designed a better battery that is cheaper. 
Normally when you, when you draw on, like you can either have something that's quick, that's good quality or cheap. Like you can only pick two <laughs> and it feels like you guys have kind of, you know, find some solution to, you know, hit all three of those things. So yeah, that's, that's really amazing. So looking, looking forward to following that journey and see how that goes. Yep. That's right. So John, what has been one of your most important decisions that you have made around Mama Earth? I guess what I would say, um, when it comes to sort of environment, environmental consciousness and the focus on clean tech or reducing the effects of climate change, I think, and this kind of goes to the beginning of the recording, in grad school, I had developed and spent quite a lot of time thinking about electronic systems and their applications. You know, at that time, like I said, you know, clean tech was becoming a very real topic of discussion and it was solving a problem that was becoming very real, which was climate change. And I think that the decision that I made to focus my efforts and the application of really my education on this problem was probably the most important decision that I made to, to impact you know, environmental consciousness. And it's been a long and sort of non-linear path from there to where we are today, which is that we're squarely impacting climate change and clean tech. But it sort of set me on that trajectory to, to be in a position to make that kind of impact. And I'm, I'm very happy sort of where, where I've ended up. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, that's, that's something definitely that you can be super proud of because it's, it is definitely making an impact. John, we are now going to move into our final five. What is one social media account or publication that you follow? I really follow peer companies on LinkedIn. And I look at sort of what are the energy publications and particular clean tech publications on LinkedIn. I wouldn't say there's one in particular, but I also follow several podcasts. I really like uh, the Tech Tent and also the TED Radio Hour. That's two great ones. And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? So I think that we can be optimistic about our ability as a society to address climate change, but we need to continue to focus on this as a global emergency and make sure that we implement the technologies and the shifts in the market that we need to make as fast as possible to sort of address this problem. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to help out Mama Earth? Well, you could be a, an advocate or a champion or an ambassador of clean technologies. You could start with Neocarbonics or Nanoramic Labs. Go on LinkedIn. We post frequently as a company on LinkedIn, and I also post. So you can share those posts, like them, comment on them, open up a debate. Awesome. I will link that up in our show notes as well. So Crazy Bird, you can easily go and find that. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people that are not yet on a sustainable journey? There's a number of those. One of them is that solar plus energy storage power plant in the US today is cheaper to build than a, natural, a new natural gas power plant. Wow, that's a good one. And where can people actually find you? They can find me on our website, nanoramic.com, or they can find me on LinkedIn. 
Awesome. And I am going to link that all up for our crazy birds as well so that they can go ahead and find you and check out the amazing work that you guys are doing. Thank you so much, John, for being on the podcast. You've been an amazing guest and thank you for all the work that you guys are doing. Like it's really making such an impact. And yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up with you in like 10 years time and be like, you know, oh yeah, remember that conversation? Look where you are today. So yeah, looking forward to, to that whole journey. Great. Thanks, Mariska. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guest for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them and I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes so if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them. Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms and they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday, so make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.